Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Friends, welcome again to Engage 360 at Denver Seminary. We're really glad and grateful you've chosen to spend a little bit of time with us. I'm Don Payne, your host, and glad to be joined again by our president, Dr. Mark Young. Mark, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Don. Great to be back. You know, you can tell a lot about the state of just about any enterprise by looking at two things, looking at the the interplay between two things. One, what is going on in the field of that enterprise, and then what's going on in the educational and formational entities that support that enterprise. That's true with law, medicine, engineering, uh, just about any field of endeavor that's changing and growing. Uh, you, you look at what's going on in the trenches, what's going on on the shelf, and that's going to reflect what's going on in the R&D or the research labs that support that, and then vice versa. And the same thing is true with this world we live in called theological education or seminary education. And really glad that Mark is here to visit with us this episode about a new book he has coming out in January from Erdman's called The Hope of the Gospel. Now, this book is one in a series of currently, I think, seven books, but ultimately to be about 12 books on the future of theological education. Now, whether or not that is your uh, nerd fest of choice, um, this still has, um, what would I say, deep and and long-running tentacles of influence in the state and the health of the church. And if you're a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, you ought to have a vested interest in that. So we're going to talk a little bit about Mark's new book, what that represents, where that came from, and what kinds of things do we in the world of theological education, as well as those in the trenches of, of ministry, need to be thinking about in the way forward. I'm going to be just disgustingly trite and cliche here and talk about the rapid pace of change in our world. Everybody talks about that. Okay. At the same time, in the last five years, even the last two years, we've witnessed exponential rates of change and types of change that are continuing to dizzy us in a lot of ways. And we're trying to think ahead of what the, what, the, what the challenges of ministry are going to be going forward and how do we need to be thinking about what it means to prepare people to go into those ministries. So, Mark, tell us um, a little bit about the, the history, the backdrop of this book, The Hope of the Gospel, and then we can get into what your argument is, what you're talking about in the book. Okay, thanks, Don. A few years back, the Lilly Foundation gave Ted Smith, a faculty member at Candler, Seminary, Candler Theological Seminary, a grant to explore what is the future of theological education across the spectrum of both Protestant and Catholic schools. That grant was called Theological Education Between the Times. And so what Ted did is gather 12 of us who are practitioners and scholars and for a period of three years we met together at least three times a year to look at how the changing contexts of ministry affect the way we think about and the way we ultimately do theological education. And so we had wonderful fellowship across boundaries that typically we wouldn't cross 
people that I would never have naturally interacted with in my circles, now sitting around table, sharing concerns, sharing common values, sharing fears, anxieties about what we're facing as theological educators, and more importantly, what kind of context the church is finding itself across these uh, traditional denominational lines. So each of us, uh, all 12 of us, uh, is writing a book about the concerns that we bring from our particular perspectives. Uh, in the group, the four of us would come from schools that were traditionally known as evangelical schools or serve evangelical constituents. And then five to six came from mainline Protestant uh, schools, and then the rest were from Roman Catholic schools. And I would say to you that uh, some of the richest fellowship in Christ, some of the richest conversation that I've had as an educator, uh, and some of the deepest theological conversations I've had in a long time happened around that table with that group of people whom uh, I came to love as friends and as, as colleagues. So I'm thankful to the Lilly Foundation for allowing us to get together and work on these books. Now, the, the thread line in these series of books is something like the future of theological education. That's right. Uh, between the times, Ted intentionally chose that because we want to take stock of our history and see that history as important in understanding our present and shaping our future. Uh, and I would say to you that for me, writing this book forced me to come to grips with the history of our movement uh, in a way that I never had been asked to do or never, unfortunately, saw the need to do. Mm. Uh, and it brought up for me a stark realization that uh, for many of us in evangelicalism, we don't know our history, and therefore we don't know how we are shaped by that history today. And frankly, we don't know how that history might carry us into the future if some significant changes aren't made. So in some ways, this book was uh, me trying to figure out how the history of our movement is shaping what we're experiencing today as evangelicals. Uh, and as I said, it was not just cathartic, but in some ways it was um, convicting as well as uh, hopeful. You know, you've, um, you've written this book from the, both the vantage point and with an eye toward uh, this big, what, what's often called a big tent of evangelicalism. And uh, we, many of us probably know better than ever now that that word gets um, used, if not sometimes hijacked, in lots and lots of different ways. So one of the things I appreciated about your book is that you're trying to reground this terminology and the movement that we would uh, connote by this terminology in its history, in its theological values, in its uh, even in the the things that the movement has kind of learned along the way through several centuries. And and so we've got what could be a really long con we could be a really long conversation because there are a lot of talking points here, but. Why don't you give us a bit of an overview of what you try to do in this book? Okay, thanks. Well, let, let me also say that this book emerged from a personal crisis of whether or not evangelicalism was meaningful at all as a term. Hmm. 
I would argue, and I do say in the book, that uh, the way evangelical as an adjective and evangelicalism as a noun are used in the broader culture has very little in common with our theological commitments. In other words, the terms have been so co-opted by ourselves, by, by us, as well as by the broader society, to mean little more than conservative Republican, that many people question whether they're worth even keeping. And I am honest in the book. I think that public, uncritical support by very popular, widely disseminated voices in evangelicalism for Donald Trump in 2015, 2016, all the way through the 2020 election, has created a crisis that I'm not sure we will survive in terms of an, a coherent identity as a movement. Because in that uncritical support for that candidate, and really the point is not support, it's the uncritical support. Yeah, I was going to highlight that. Mm -hmm. It's the uncritical support. That's right. Yeah. We surrendered our, our profile as a movement characterized by truth, as a movement characterized by virtue, as a movement characterized by character. And so if that is the case, and I believe it is, I think we are facing an identity crisis that rivals the identity crisis of the movement in the 1920s through the Scopes trial. Our credibility and the credibility of the message we claim centers us uh, is in dire straits. So the question is, what's the way forward? How did we get here? And is there a way forward? And specifically, what role does theological education play in helping us plot a way forward? Do you want to walk us through maybe a couple of the really high points in that history that you think were def defining points uh, that, that anybody who would align themselves particularly theologically with evangelicalism? Uh, what, what are some of those defining points that anybody ought to be aware of in our history? Yeah, well, let me first say I'm not a professional historian, right? So you have to hear this as a bit of a, a populist history, perhaps, or at least an a, a amateur historian's history. But I think the best way to understand our movement is to see it as a reactionary movement. At five critical junctures, there were reactions against what was the dominant religious expression and understanding. And I think those five reactions help provide a nice framework for understanding how evangelicalism developed to what it is today. So the first, of course, is the Reformation, where uh, Luther and others began to react against medieval Catholicism and reclaim in their mind what was the true gospel and make that the centerpiece. It's, not, it's important for us to remember that evangelical as a word comes to us through German, which comes then from Greek, and evangelische in German was essentially the word that was used to describe Protestantism. So all Protestants at one point were evangelicals in that sense. Uh, then I think we see a reaction against state church Protestantism 
that we began to see emerging in Scotland as well as in continental Europe. And from that, we see the Puritan and the Pietists' streams of Protestant thought emerge. And it's easy to caricature and stereotype the two, but in, in general, you can say that one stream was much more intent on solidifying the theological foundations, much more much more given to that type of uh, value, and the other began to emphasize more theological experience or spiritual experience. Now, both emphasize both, but there was, I think, a trend to see those two streams emphasizing both the mind and the heart, if you want to say yeah, it. Yeah, the Puritans and the Pietists, That's it. respectively. Right, and then you see a reaction to colonial uh, religion in the United States, colonial Protestantism, in the great revivals. So I have a chapter in the book called Revive Us Again. Mm -hmm. And at its core, contemporary evangelicalism is revivalist religion. That's probably particularly true in the U.S., wouldn't you say? And that's where we're focused at this point, in the U.S., right? So, and by that I mean the essence of evangelicalism is a religious conversion experience. And what's interesting is that through the great revivals and the emphasis on preaching and bringing to a point of decision for Jesus, we really create the possibility of a churchless Christianity, mm-hmm. right? Because salvation occurs at the revival, and then if you look at, if you're willing to take a look at that and move forward, that trend is very much a part of what evangelicalism purports or is sociologically as we come even into our current situation. I'm not sure we've ever really figured out our ecclesiology, what the church is in evangelical thought. Then the next big reaction uh, I would call, or I would say, that shapes the movement today is that reaction that occurs in the early 20th century when evangelicalism up until the end of the 19th century is the dominant expression of Protestantism, but you begin to see movement apart between those who adopt a more scientific critical approach to scripture, those who value science and technology and a more optimistic view of the future, modernism, as well as an influx of Roman Catholic immigrants that begin to really challenge Protestantism as the dominant religious presence, and those who react against that and become much more um, outspoken and even, I would, I would say, pugilistic in their adherence to the great fundamentals of the faith, right? So evangelicalism, which really you could say almost all Christianity in the U.S. had been up until that point, splits into what we now know as mainline liberal Protestantism and fundamentalism with the publishing Mm -hmm. of the great fundamentals. Well, that then creates another reaction a few years later when a group of people who the fundamentalists called neo-evangelicals say, we want to be engaged in the political and social world and the intellectual life of the nation, and we want to do that in a winsome way. We don't want to stand apart and just yell. We want to hold on to the fundamentals, but we want to engage the world. And frankly, evangelicalism as a religious identity really gains popularity again through the work of Billy Graham and his renown. And that really is, I think, the foundation historically that brings us into even the current uh, scenario. Now, obviously, there are lots of other events, 
There are lots of other personalities, some of whom are honorable, some of whom aren't, yeah, yeah. with Mixed different bag. with different motives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how does this uh, begin to affect what we're thinking about theological education? What and and so from your vantage point as a seminary president and your years of work with uh, one of our accrediting agencies, the Association of Theological Schools. What is it about theological education that is most at risk or not working? Well, I think the the challenge, Don, is that we as insiders want to define ourselves theologically, but the historical record defines us differently. I think you could argue that in evangelicalism, it is in fact some of the undergirding beliefs that we say are important to us that have actually led us to this point of crisis. The way we think about the Bible, the way we think about the cross, the way we think about conversion, the way we think about activism or mission, I'm going to argue has actually stripped away some of that nuanced theological understanding that really develops or only develops in formal, I'm going to say it, uh, in-depth theological education. And to the degree that our movement is still led primarily by those with no formal theological education, we've seen the outcome of that in the movement's loss of identity and mission. Now, you're referring, some listeners will be aware of this, but for those who are not, you're referring to what we would call a taxonomy uh, that was given to us by uh, the English um, I'm not sure what he was, a sociologist or a theologian, David Bebbington, mm-hmm. some, a few decades back, where he defined evangelicalism in terms of its commitment to, uh, he used those words, biblicism, crucicentrism, or the centrality of the cross, conversionism, and then uh, activism. Those were his four pillars, and Bebbington's, uh, Bebbington's outline has been, has been used very widely to help us reflect on ourselves as a movement. And what I appreciate about your work is that you really give some extended attention to each of those and take a look at um, what, what they're at their core intended to mean and then where they've either maybe gone off the rails or not gone, or they, or they've gotten stuck somewhere. And then you talk a bit about what's needed to kind of give a reboot or a reset in each of those. Um, maybe, maybe we want to w- touch on each of those and walk a little bit through your analysis of kind of where we're stuck, uh, what those are intended to be, and, and where are some of the ways, or yeah, where, where, what are some of the ways in which we need to kind of uh, bump start, kick start those, and think differently about them. What, so what about biblicism, our commitment to biblical authority? Yeah, let's let's start there because we always do. <laughs> yeah, and I think right. I think you could say that in evangelicalism, uh, for some people, uh, biblicism seems to be more important than Christology, right? Or bibliology seems to be more important than Christology. So the essence of biblicism is simply uh, what we all sang in Sunday school: the B I B L E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B I B L E. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think for, for us, uh, not backing away from the idea that the Bible uh, is our guide for faith and practice, it's the authority under which we live for faith and practice, 
uh, is something that evangelicals have to hold on to. The problem we face in the way we've, we've exercised biblicism, I summarized in a sentence where I say we, we read the Bible too simplistically, we interpret the Bible too arrogantly, and we apply the Bible too selectively. Basically, what has happened in our movement is we have elevated the, the possibility of choosing and picking scriptures and then reading into them what we want so that we can justify the behaviors that we want. Mm -hmm. And the perfect illustration of that is the Civil War and the question of slavery. Mark Knoll's book, The uh, Civil War's Theological Crisis, is a, is a wonderful and very convicting expose of how biblicism, as we practiced it, led two camps of evangelicals to come to two very different conclusions, one of which was the Bible prohibits slavery, chattel slavery, the other on the basis of some biblical texts that the Bible not only permits it but sanctions it. That division, that ability of people both honoring the Bible, coming to two radically and dramatically different conclusions about a, an issue that important for humanity demonstrates just how deficient our biblicism has been, our approach to understanding what Scripture is and how we interpret it. You have a statement uh, when you're talking about the, the biblicism, the sort of simplistic, um, narrow, and arrogant, I think those are your three adjectives, right? Um, when you're talking about how those particular ways of reading the Bible have, have positioned us for the kind of rifts that we're seeing today, uh, I, I picked up on this statement. You say biblicism leaves little middle ground for common cause between those who read a text differently. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what is the unique contribution of theological education to this particular dilemma? Yeah, so I would argue that in theological education, we have the privilege, first of all, to back, back away from the text and say just what is the Bible and help people understand that the Bible isn't just a guidebook, is it just a collection of tips on how to live. It's the one true story of the one true God and his engagement in human history redemptively. So first, reading that Bible, reading the Bible, understanding it as, as it's written, as the story and placing it as the, the book that tells us the story of God's intervention. Secondly, in formal theological education, we have the privilege now to understand how those texts are constructed, those individual texts, in what contexts they are constructed, how the sociological, how the grammatical and syntactical, how the human dimension of Scripture comes together to give us the Bible that we read today. And then thirdly, we have the privilege to say, based on that understanding contextually, we now have an obligation to assess our context and not just say, well, the Bible says this, I'm going to do exactly that. Because every time we do that once, there are 10 times we don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Right? The Bible says a whole lot of things we don't do. Exactly. <laughs> right. Way more than we do do, yeah. right? Yeah. So the point is then formal theological education gives us the framework whereby we can step back, 
look at our contexts, look at that context, understand the purpose for which those commands and directives are given, and ask, what were they meant to accomplish in the great redemptive story of God? And then step back into our world and say, how do we accomplish that today? That kind of nuanced thinking, to be honest with you, Don, is something that we in the mission community have done for generations. Mm. But in the context where we grow up reading the Bible and hearing it preached a certain way, one way, this is right, this is wrong, we don't do that type of contextual analysis. And in the process, we fly over 2,000 years of church history and don't even take into consideration how our reading of a text has been shaped by the reading of that text and the teaching of it for 2,000 years of biblical preachers and theologians and thinkers. You know, you're reminding me of comments that I've heard through the years, um, kind of a a pushback set of comments where people will say to, to people like you and me, you're making reading the Bible so complicated. You almost make it inaccessible. And I've puzzled over that because certainly none of us want to do that. Um, the Word of God is, is powerful. It is God's Word. And the, well, one of the responses I've generated to that type of resistance that we make the Bible so complicated with all of this is that we're not talking about repairing a refrigerator. We're, t- we're talking about human persons. I mean, what is more complex than the human person and the one true almighty God and the interaction, the relationship between. Exactly. And the restoration of relationship between that God and these persons. What could be more complex than that? That deserves our, now here I'm, I'm preaching, you're the podcast guest, not me, but I, <laughs> I'm going off here. <laughs> you know, I mean, that does that not deserve our, our deepest um, and most nuanced thinking in order to be faithful to that. I would hope so. And, and take it a step further. If you're going to stand in front of a congregation and say, this is the word of the Lord, and this is what it means in your life today, you better know what you're talking about. And you better have given some deep Ex- and considered thought to that. Exactly. You know, it's interesting, at the time of the Reformation, uh, a lot of those in the Catholic hierarchy were horrified by the thought that individuals could read the Bible and understand what it meant on their own. And there's a sense in which we react against that, right? Because the Reformation was about bring, making Scripture available in languages right. and in ways. And, and I, I'm fully, obviously, in favor of that, of that. Evangelicals have been at the forefront of making the Bible accessible. But at the end of the day, when we think about where our movement has moved, in some regards, we have basically given papal authority to every preacher that steps into a pulpit because they're the ones saying this is what the Word of God means. So if we're going to, as a movement, see that kind of authority in the preaching of God's Word, then I want to sit and listen to somebody who has studied the Scripture deeply, understands the nuances of the text and the story, understands the contexts in which it was written and in which we live. That's why I would argue that one of the great hindrances to, the, to evangelicalism becoming more vibrant in our culture is the lack of trained preachers, hmm. the lack of those who get up and say, this is what the Word of God says, and to be perfectly frank, they don't have that nuanced understanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In many cases, probably neither 
uh, done, done their homework, nor had, nor had the skills and the tools to do that homework. Mm-hmm. Well. That's right. And then you magnify that by the, by the fact that, again, we have a whole sector of, of evangelicalism that thinks it's just about me and God. And I'm going to read the Bible, and whatever God tells me that today, then that's, that's the truth for yeah. everyone. Yeah. And so you have this kind of—it's it's almost hard to imagine the, the boiling and the stirring within the people— of all the different things God allegedly is saying to us that often leads to two very different understandings or four or five or ten different understandings yeah. of what God And sometimes revealed. just crazy and damaging things. Yes. It's, tragically. Yes. Mark, we may not have uh, time to go through each of these uh, markers of evangelicalism, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about conversionism. Sure. What it, What is it about that that should um, prompt us to think more deeply mm-hmm. than we typically have as evangelicals. Right. It is interesting when you go back and look at Bebbington's work. And by the way, he's a historian of the church. And his book originally was written about 19th, 18th, 19th century evangelicalism in mm-hmm. the UK. But conversionism is the first of the traits that he mentions. I think that's wise. So uh, from a perspective of American evangelicalism, and one who's theologically trained, we, we want to go Bible, because that's the source of truth, cross, that's salvation, conversion, that's how I experience it, and mission, that's how I live it out. But I think what Bebbington captured by making that first in the list is that the one common element that we might be able to point to in evangelicalism is we all have a conversion story. Yeah. Right? We all believe that we've been born again, we've been made new, and that our life is different because we've met Jesus. <laughs> and, you know, the, the great thing is, like, when I was a kid, we had revivals twice a year. And I got saved all the time. I mean— You met Jesus a lot. I did. I, <laughs> I mean, and every time I went, I was convicted of my sin, and I needed to go forward and be saved. And, of course, you know, my church wouldn't have purported that theologically, but that's what it felt like, yeah, right? Yeah, right. I just wanted to walk with God. I wanted to know God. And most importantly— I wanted to know my sins were forgiven. So the classic revivalist conception of conversion is really one thing. Your sins are forgiven, and you're going to heaven. So conversion becomes a siloed transaction between you and God personally that secures your future in heaven because of what Christ did on the cross. So I—and that's true. All true. All true. But I think there's a much deeper, even, I like, you like this phrase, thicker understanding of conversion that talks about not just what my, how my future is different, but that as someone who has now taken on a whole new identity, not just spiritually, but socially and personally, that needs to express itself in a very different way of life. Now, I argue that conversionism that's cut off from the church denudes the concept of conversion and takes away that understanding of conversion as the creation of a new identity. That new identity needs to be wrapped up as a part of and understanding and seeing ourselves as the very presence of God, as the church. Yeah, a new people, a new uh, just pe- a new, both a new person and a new people. There you go. Right? So here's, here's the way it works out. 
We don't think of conversion that way. So we substitute other identities and make them preeminent above our identity as the people of God. So what are those identities? I'm an American. I'm a Republican or a Democrat or whatever. And so the lack of, a, of an understanding of conversion making me something new and distinct from all other identities on this planet allows us to seek out and elevate other identities to the place that ought to be occupied by, I'm a child of God. We are the people of God. I'm a member of that people, a people that exists to live out the very presence of God, not to make sure the Supreme Court is packed or the right people get elected to office. Well, that that strikes me as a focus on a new destiny without focusing on a new identity, or it's, it's um, limiting the focal point of conversion to destiny without expanding what it means for all things, quite literally, to be made new. That's correct. That's the new And the I new think that's where, that's where crucicentrism becomes so important because, mm-hmm. again, if we think of crucicentrism only in atonement language, and I believe in atonement language, right? Our sins are paid for. The blood is shed. Our sins are forgiven. But crucicentrism is also the establishment of kingdom, right? So conversionism is ushering us into the, an identity as the very presence of God on the earth, the outworking, the beginning, the, the, the uh, seeds of the very kingdom of God. So those two I see as very tightly tied together. Yeah, and that obviously and rather instantaneously uh, affects our understanding of the gospel. That's right. That's the, exactly. The euangelion, the good news, at the core of the root evangelical, uh, it both both thickens. You picked up on my favorite word there. You, it both thickens and it extends or expands our understanding of what it means to be people of the gospel and the implications. That's right. So, you know, think, think back with me. If we think of evangelicalism as a revivalist populist movement and we think of biblicism, you know, our focal point of what's right and wrong is something in the past. That leads to this value of, conver- of conservatism, because we want to conserve what was. And there's all good, there's lots of good things there. But then you translate that into a, a diminished view of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, a diminished view of what it means to become a, 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 of conversion, and then ultimately I would say a diminished view of mission. And all of a sudden, where are you going to go? You don't have another option that's deep in your heart other than, well, I'm going to hook into conservative politics because I'm a conservative by values. And by the way, I'm a conservative by values. And, I, and, I don't, and I'm saved and I'm trying to live a holy life. And I, I kind of, you know, I do it on and off and I go to Bible study and I sin and I confess and everything's good. And I'm going to heaven. But man, the world around me is not doing so great. So what, where's my hope? What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to latch on to what looks like a solution to a world that is not where I think it ought to be or not where even uh, the Scripture says it shouldn't be. I'm going to latch on to an identity and a solution that, in my opinion, is just a mockery of what we are actually called to be as the people of God 
who are living out the presence of God and creating the, fount- the, the seed, a smell, an aroma, a taste, a whisper of what God ultimately will do in the restoration of all things. Hmm, that's exciting. So as you think about theological education, the world of seminary, how do you think this calls us to be different in the generation we're moving into? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of the conversation in theological education is around methods, right? Do we educate person a person on campus or online or do we use this kind of teaching technology or whatever? And all that's really good, and we all have to pay attention to it. But I think we need to rethink the very essence of the theological underpinnings of the theological curriculum. What is it that our students are actually leaving with? What convictions theologically are they leaving our, our studies with and moving into ministry? And I would argue that in the academy is the best place in the theological schools, we have the best place to have these tough conversations about these core theological commitments that have, in my view, become much thinner, much more shrill, and less dynamic and effective than they could be in the lives of God's people. Hmm. Who do you want to see Denver Seminary be? What do you think that'll look like here? What would you hope for that to look like here? I want us to lead the conversation. Uh, I want us to, to be able to say, we need to rethink what we believe about the Bible, how we interpret the Bible. We need to hold on to our bibliology. I'm not saying that at all. But we need to rethink how we, how we think about and how we interpret and especially how we apply the Bible. We need to rethink what we teach about the cross and understanding its cosmic significance as well as its personal significance. We need to rethink what it means to know Christ and what that identity means in the broader society as well as personally. And we need need to think, where's our voice? What do we do in terms of making the gospel a presence that people want to believe? I want us to have those conversations, Mm -hmm. and I want our curriculum to reflect and our learning outcome and what we're reading to reflect those conversations afresh. And quite frankly, I think we're, we are beautifully positioned for that at Denver Seminary because we aren't just beholden to any one tradition of evangelical or Protestant theology. We have a community of people who come from different backgrounds with different expertise, with different understandings. We have the privilege to dive into those deeper conversations because nobody's looking over our shoulder and saying, oh, that's not Calvinistic enough or that's not pietistic enough, right? We're helping us understand in the rich tapestry of evangelical theological history how we can craft deeper and richer understandings today so that the gospel is more credible and compelling to our broader society. Mm. Yeah, I get excited about it. Yeah, you do. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, thanks. And friends, if um, if you want to hear more about that, want to learn more about that, we'd encourage you to connect with our website you can find uh, lots of lots of different ways in which we are already trying to work this out at denver seminary and if you know somebody including yourself who may want to spend some time studying with us uh, whether online or here in littleton or in washington dc get in touch with us we'd love to talk with you about how these conversations this type of conversation 
can be part of what God is doing in your life to move you forward into the world. It's part of the mission of God. Uh, Mark's book coming out in January is The Hope of the Gospel by Erdman's. You get yourself a copy of that, and we would love to interact with you about that. Uh, you can email us, podcast at denverseminary.edu is our email address. I'm grateful to, to the many of you who pray for us, who who support us in one way or another, and I hope that the Lord gets you excited about what it means to be part of God's mission, truly biblically, moving into this uh, these coming years. Friends, I'm Don Payne. You are listening to Engage 360, and we look forward to having another conversation with you really soon. Take care.